Welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of the Horse.com. Ask the Vet Live is an hour-long session where you get to ask horse health questions of industry experts. Tonight's Ask the Vet Live topic is training the equine athlete for strength, conditioning, and longevity. And it's brought to you by the Horses Sports Medicine e-newsletter. You can sign up for that newsletter uh, online at thehorse.com. It's packed with new information with each issue. During the next hour, we're going to be talking with Dr. Tina Stewart of Eugene, Oregon. Dr. Stewart is a veterinarian, an equine chiropractor, a lecturer, and a Grand Prix dressage competitor and clinician. As a practitioner, her focus is on lameness and pre-purchase consultations. Uh, welcome, Dr. Stewart. I'm really excited about our conversation this evening. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Um. I wanted to know a little bit about your background because, you know, we come, it's not often that we come across instructors, especially at your level of expertise, who are also veterinarians. Usually I don't think anyone has enough time to do both. Um, how, how did your career evolve so that you were working on horses and also training riders? Well, I'm a horse nut from the age of two, you know, ridden and road hunters and jumpers and started dressage when I was 13 with Klaus Albin, who was from the German cavalry and pulled my braid back and tied it to my belt to make me look up when I rode. But, you know, I've been riding my whole life and I'm a complete and utter horse nut and thought that a career as a veterinarian would afford me time and money to do the luxury of what I really love, which is riding and training. So... Um, I decided to go to vet school. And then getting out of vet school, I had, um, I had gotten a, you know, I trained several horses to lower level dressage, second, third level. I had a bulldog quarter horse pony that was schooling pre-St. George and stepped on a nail somehow and ended up foundering and had to put her down. And in the meantime, I'd gotten hold of a, kind of whacked out Hanoverian gelding that had been through the Verdon auction and had been back east and blah, blah, blah. And so he was probably my first real, you know, warm blood competitive dressage horse. And, um, and then I got a thoroughbred stallion that had been a hunter and just didn't really want to do that job anymore. So those two I had gotten while I was developing my traditional equine practice in the Bay Area, um, I was training these horses and riding with primarily Major Anders Lindgren and then Charles de Comte and uh, got these two horses competing at Grand Prix. And I had taught since I was 15, and then once I got into vet school, I swore I'd never teach again because I thought I wouldn't need to or want to. I was kind of burned out on teaching. And then once I got these two horses competing at the FEI levels, you know, people started asking me if I'd teach or if I clinicked and I resisted for a while, but kind of person by person, I started teaching again. And it, it's actually become a lifesaver because when the economy tanked, you know, a lot of my work definitely diminished as the whole horse industry suffered. And all of us horse nuts, you know, we never quit riding. So thank God people kept kept clinicking and riding. And it's, it's kind of evolved into a significant part of what I do now. So how does your education and experience as a vet support your training of horses? You know, I think, I think it, uh, it supports it in that now I really understand the consequences of what happens when it goes wrong, because that's what veterinarians deal with, right? Lamenesses and swellings and, and, cranky attitudes and, you know, diminished performance, all those things. And I certainly was aware of that as a horseman, um, but wasn't aware of it to the depth that I am now, nor understood the, you know, kind of biomechanics and the um, biochemistry and uh, the whole physiology of it. And so, you know, being a veterinarian, um, I mean, I love my education, but I'm I'm still first and foremost a horse nut. So, it just it just supports my 
my uh, my obsession with horses. So we have a lot of questions that were submitted for you to answer prior to this event starting. Um, for everyone who's listening live, you can submit questions for Dr. Stewart to answer live uh, in your browser console. Just type it in and send it. Our managing editor of the horse, uh, Alex Beckstedt, is going to be reading those and sending those on to me. Um, and we also have some additional resources. If you're listening, I'm going to warn you to not close the browser that you're listening in. You want to open another window and go to thehorse.com slash performancehorsehealth. If you sign in there, uh, we've compiled a bunch of resources on this topic that, that I'm sure you'll find interesting. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started, uh, Dr. Stewart. I want to ask you first to talk to us a little bit about your approach to an individual training session with a horse. What what are the parts of a complete training session? Okay, well, because I'm a complete horse neurotic, for me, it almost starts with looking at the horse coming out of the stall. Does the stall have adequate bedding? Does it have adequate ventilation? Or is the horse coming off a field and it's had turnout? Um, all those things affect my attitude about the warm-up. A horse coming off a field is, you know, at least been moving around and stretched horse. A horse coming out of a deeply bedded stall, I have the good feeling that it's probably at least been able to lay down and rest and, and uh, give its legs a break. Um, and then a horse coming out of a, say, a 12 by 12 stall with only enough bedding for one or two urinations and, you know, not a nice place to lay down and rest, um, my warm-up will probably be a little longer and a little more fastidious because I think built into that situation is inherent stiffness and probably a little bit of grumpiness. So um, warm-up is hugely important to me on many levels. And, and you know, it varies with the age of the horse. Um you know, a really young, fractious horse you might put on the lunch line. And an older horse needs at least, you know, 10, 12, 15-minute walk um, just on the buckle, loose, nice forward walk, you know, if weather permits, outside. Um, and then if the horse is trained enough, I like to see him trot, maybe even canter on a loose rein and, and just let their body parts move as best they can, the older the horse, you know, again, the longer it takes to get warmed up. Um, so in reality, and this makes a lot of people psycho, but you're looking at, you know, a good 20-minute warm-up anyway is kind of a minimum. Um, in dressage, you know, you could do a lot of work at the walk, a lot of lateral work and bending and stuff before you even put them together in the trot work. Um, most of them jumper people tend to do a bit of a walk, a trot, a canter on a loose rein, and and then it, depending on what they're working on, you know, they'll get, they're more likely to get right to work. But, um, yeah, that's my feeling about warm-up. And what about cooling a horse off? What what should be included in that, and how long should that take? And that also will depend on how hot the horse gets or how strenuous the work was. Um you know, you definitely want to keep them moving until their respiration is back to normal. Um, and there's some feeling that, you know, if you've been working the horse really hard and they're really breathing hard and sweating hard, um, some interval sets of trotting and, and walking and trotting and walking just to keep the blood flowing through the muscles uh, a little more consistently rather than just dropping straight to a walk and cooling them out. Um, that's supposed to increase removal of toxins in the muscles and, and help support cooling the horse out and minimizing any muscle soreness. So, you know, that takes however long it takes until the horse is dry and the respiration's normal. Our 
first question, our first audience question is from Lou in Canada. And Lou wants to know how much is too much. She says, I always worry about overtraining, but have no way to know if I'm pushing too hard regarding my horse's joints, muscles, and mind. What's your advice for Lou? Yeah, so that depends on the individual horse. I mean, the hotter horses will go forever. And so you, with that in mind, you really do have to set time limits. You know, in general, if you're training for a particular discipline, unless you're at really upper level eventing, you know, Grand Prix dressage, Grand Prix jumping, um, you know, the really high-end barrel horses, reining horses, cow horses, um, all of them, um, and even at the highest levels, almost everybody uses interval training so that you trot, you know, three to five minutes and then walk for a minute and trot three to five minutes and walk. And, and depending on the level of education your horse has, you know, you'd be doing lateral work, you'd do passage, you're doing, you know, just forward and back in the trot, working bending, whatever. Um, but breaking it up with short walk breaks, and it's, it's what they do with, you know, personal trainers at the gym. You know, you do circuit training or you do an interval training where you do, you know, certain sets and you take a break and certain sets and take a break. So um, that's my approach at all levels. And then just depending on, on the horse's fitness and um, where it is in its level of training, you can increase that time frame. Endurance horses are a whole nother cup of tea because, you know, at some point you've got to uh, trot that 25 miles or that 50 miles. But basically conditioning those horses for with the interval training is what ultimately gets you through the long haul. And, you know, you talk to marathon runners, they don't run 26 miles every day. They, they run two to five miles and they do interval sets and they cross train. So, um, and then, you know, the horse's temperament is huge and hot horses tend to be more generous. And in my opinion, hot horses get hotter when they get tired. So, if you feel like, you know, you can't wear your horse out, you've probably already done that. Um, you know, they they need the same breaks as uh, a lazier or less generous horse. But you have to know your horse and, and you have to kind of know what's re- required or expected at the level of, of training that you're at. Now, you mentioned those walk breaks. Are you talking about a walk break that's an engaged walk, or is it an on-the-buckle, let-the-horse-stretch-down after working in the trot or the canter? Um, and that, again, it, it depends on what you're doing. If the horse, you know, like a lot of times, if you're working something really intense, like a, you know, piaf, and, and you've got to get the horse really heated up for it, or, you know, you're doing some huge combinations, then you're going to let that horse walk on the buckle and just emotionally and physically completely chill out. Um, If you're doing some short trot sets, you might do some walk work on the bit, you know, little lateral work or something at the walk. It, it, It depends on the situation. But more often than not, I like to drop the rein, you know, on the buckle and let them have a complete break. I think... Mentally, it's almost, it's more important for mental health and physical health a lot of times. We have a follow-up question from our live audience. Bella is listening in Puerto Rico, and she wants to know if the outside temperature has anything to do with how long your warm-up should be with your horse. She points out that she lives in a place that has a, a tropical climate right. <laughs> um, and is in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's very true, and what's so hard about that kind of a climate, um, and I work with horses in Redding, California, where it can be, you know, 108 and 115, and, you know, by the time you've walked and warmed up, those horses are dripping in sweat, um, but you still have to, you know, I mean, you're certainly not going to have to warm them up as if it's 32 degrees, um, but you still, you still have to work them because it's partly about the blood flow and getting the blood in those muscle bellies and, and bases, um, you know, pumping and, and getting the circulation moving. So, um, you know, you can't just because it's warm outside, you can't just take that horse and go to work. 
you still have to do a good walk. You've got to do your trot and canter warm-up. Um, you know, you just, in some ways, they need more walk breaks when it's hot and, and possibly a sponging off and cooling um, because in a hot climate, it's the skin that's, you know, where all the vasodilation is going on that's um, dealing with the heat, but the core temperatures is maybe slightly higher, but not a lot higher. So you, you still have to do the work of the warm-up, and if, if anything, you, you just need to give them more breaks and, like I said, either sponge them or something to cool them off so they can not get overheated. Now, we received a lot of questions uh about young horses and when is the right time to start a young horse and how much work is a young horse capable of doing. Um, we have one from Susan in South Carolina and she says I have a three-year-old mare that my daughter is training for jumping or, or possibly eventing. She's a warm blood. What should we do to maintain her joints? Are there any supplements, exercises, precautions that we could do to keep her fit for her entire lifetime? And uh, she says that this horse is, is pretty special to them. What <laughs> advice do you have? And I, I have a young yeah. one too. I have a three-year-old and, and I worry about this a lot because I have an older horse that we're dealing with a lot of physical issues as, later in his career. What advice do you have for, for people with these young horses? Well, you know, this, again, it depends on the, the horse's temperament. Um, you know, if, if the horse is fairly generous and willing and forward, then, you know, at three, really all they really should be doing is some walk, trot, canter, you know, a little bit of lateral work and hacking out, go out on the trail, you know, pop over some little logs. And the rides don't need to be very long, you know, 30-minute ride, you can get a lot done. Young horses tend to have short attention spans, you know, just like kids. And, um, you know, they get pretty frustrated if the training goes on for too long. They get pretty bored. Um, so you've got to change it up, and that requires, you know, some some knowledge. And you can't do a lot of drilling. A three-year-old heading to a jumping or a vending career, um, you probably just want to get your basic, probably the equivalent of training level work done, walk, trot, canter, circling, bending lines, and, uh, you know, jumping for a three-year-old, you probably want to make it like a little field work, good jumping over logs, things that are fun. Because um, three is still pretty young for having a very serious career. And a lot of people would ride a three-year-old for a couple of months, get some basic work done, and then turn him back out for another nine months, you know, and then bring him back as a four-year-old and, and put him to work a little bit more. Um, there's a wonderful old Dutch saying, more horses are ruined in the stable. And meaning that, you know, it's really how you keep the horse that's critically important. And it's really true for young horses. They really need a place to lay down and rest. They need a place to, you know, move around and run and buck and play a little bit. And, you know, just be a, a normal animal. And, I, you know, I like to see horses fed on the ground. That's what they're designed to do. They stretch their necks and their backs, the nuchal ligament pulls the spinous ligaments and lifts the wither up and forward, and, you know, it's just how they're designed. So anything you can do to mimic what Mother Nature might provide a horse in the wild is pretty important. Um, and I would say, you know, with a young horse, you just you need to keep the training sessions short and varied so they don't get bored or frustrated or sore. And we have another question from Elizabeth, who also has a three-year-old filly that she's starting under su uh, saddle this summer. And she said she wants to begin dressage training with her, but she's unsure of how to begin safely without overdoing it. Do you have any suggestions, or are your suggestions different for a horse that's going into a dressage career versus a jumping or an eventing career? Not really. I mean, I think dressage horses should jump and do cavalettes and trail ride and have fun and... You know, what you see so often, you know, as as a coach or trainer is, is so many horses that just resent going forward. They are sick of being drilled and poked and spurred and ridden for 45 minutes straight on the bit, so to speak. And, uh, you know, they're burned out and they're cranky. And if you want a horse that's 
happy in the long run when they're young. I think they need to be ridden out more than in. And uh, they should do a little jumping and cavaletti and fun stuff. And ridden in groups, you know, in Europe, um, young horses are often taken out with groups of other horses, so they learn to be happy and forward. They it's just expected rather than having the rider sitting up there poking and prodding and pleading to get him to go. And we have a question that may be related from our live audience. Uh, Christina is in Pittsburgh, and she says she has a horse that stops and will not move forward at the beginning of a workout. She said that the mare has been examined by a vet. She's had her teeth floated. She's been visited by the chiropractor, yet she still will not move at the beginning of, of their rides. After about 20 minutes, she'll go to work and will do fine. Should, should Christina be looking for pain issues, or is this maybe a behavioral issue? I think at this point it's probably a behavioral issue. And another one of my favorite sayings, cowboy saying, what you lead is what you ride. And so there's probably some stickiness issues on the ground, and it probably would be smart to do some in hand work with her and, you know, teach her to leg yield and, and move away from pressure and, you know, some simple basic exercises in hand to address that. Um, lunging, you know, you, you teach a horse that, one cluck means go, and, and if they don't, they might get their a little rear end cracked, and, and that'll translate under saddle. You get on and, you know, cluck and go. Um, I deal with this all the time with horses. have been started with, you know, people that mean well and, and um, aren't maybe strict enough, and the horse, you know, just doesn't really want to have to work for a living and can't blame them, but... A lot of times when you get on, if you just start with turn-on-the-forehand-type exercises, I mean, just bend them and move, disengage behind them, like the cowboys would say, um, to break them up a little bit laterally, and then sometimes they're more willing to go forward. But it sounds like she's probably got a little behavioral issue going on. We have a question from Jennifer in Kentucky, and Jennifer has a six-year-old Appaloosa gelding who was started under saddle and light work when he was a three-year-old. She said that in the last couple of years, and they've ridden him in both Western and flat hunt classes, and that he usually moves and behaves nicely, but on occasions he seems to get sore, cranky, especially after back-to-back -back horse shows. Uh, she said that they've tried the chiropractor, they've... Um, tried other um, supportive care for him, but she's wondering if you have any suggestions for keeping him sound and preventing him from getting sore and grumpy. She said that they don't want this to be a lingering issue that goes on right. with his age. You know, the horse shows are so stressful for horses, and most horses by the third day are just shot. Um, a big part of that, I think, is related to, you know, there's just constant noise and turmoil and and the horses don't rest well, and I think, again, I mean, I'm just a nutcase about bedding, and when I was showing a lot, my horses were bedded extremely deep so that I knew they would lay down and rest, and and not that they weren't tired by the third day, but, you know, they weren't bad, and they weren't body sore or muscle sore, and I think often at the shows, the horses are hesitant to lay down. They're usually in a, you know, 10 by 10 stall, um, I really believe in banking, banking the stalls and making a big nest. And and she might find that if if she does that, she may be doing it already. But if if she's not, that would be the number one thing I would do is bed really, really deep and stuff if the horse won't eat it. Shavings if you have to. Um, and then the other thing is just hand walking. You know, get them out three or four day at times a day. And if there's anywhere to hand graze, you know, let them stretch his back grazing and, and relaxes back. And then the other thing that you often find it shows is people, you know, they'll ride in their class and then they'll come out and just camp on the horse and sit there chatting with somebody. And that tends to make the horses really sore. So when you're done with your class, get off, loosen the tack and, and either hand walk your horse or graze them or, or, or stay on them and take them for a walk. Um, but get off. Don't, don't just sit on their back camped out, you know, having a cocktail or whatever. <laughs> so our next question is from Kim in Connecticut. And Kim wants to know how frequently a horse uh, in training for jumping should be jumped per week or per month. Do you have any recommendations for that? 
Yeah, you know, again, it depends on the horse, and it depends on what you're schooling, um, and it depends on, on how high. But for the most part, um, George Morris once said in a clinic that I wrote in that, you know, you make the jumps between the jumps. And so with jumping in general, horses, you know, once they know how to jump, they don't really have to practice jumping um, what they need is to be ridden correctly and through the back, and you know the flat work needs to be done to make to help preserve you know their top line and the use of their body and and landing on their joints in the most supple and correct way possible. So, but obviously they need to jump, and like when you're you're learning combinations and in and outs and bounces and all that stuff. Um, you know, you need to practice. And I would say, again, depending on the age of the horse and the um, expertise of that individual horse, you know, you probably don't need to jump more than two, maximum three times a week. Our next question is from Mackenzie in Michigan, and she has a seven-year-old off-the-track thoroughbred who began training last summer, but he didn't get very far because he had some health issues that came up. He's been out to pasture and is now back in training, and she wants to know what her priorities are should be for starting him under saddle. Uh, she, she said that she wants to know if she should include anything specific in his training as she puts him back to work. Um, you know, again, it depends on, on his temperament and... Um, I mean, if he came off the track as a seven-year-old, that means he ran for quite a while. So, um, you know, is he, if he's kind of doggedly very forward-thinking, um, you know, she might want to start mainly on the lunge line and just getting the word commands, you know, put together for him, walk, trot, canter, hoe, uh, just so you have some means of communication once you're on his back and can start that stuff. And I would do a lot of work at the walk and bending lines and, and getting him to understand turning because that's turning and lateral work. I mean, especially <laughs> I've worked with several thoroughbreds that raced till they were seven and eight. And it's so funny when you start lateral work, it's like they really truly do not know where their feet are. Um, and I would recommend bell boots and splint boots because they'll whack themselves, but it, you know, just general work at the walk and work in hand, teaching them to move from pressure a little bit laterally and uh, stuff like that, just to, to give him kind of his alphabet, you know, let him learn the alphabet before you try to have him put the sentences together and, and just explain things piece by piece so there's no, no uh, confusion. You want to minimize his thinking that he needs to take the bit and run. Danielle in Maryland has a horse that loves to jump but gets so excited when they're jumping that he can become unmanageable and can barely focus enough to jump. She wants to know if there are any training or health-related advice that could help keep her horse calm and uninjured. And I see that that horse was on magnesium, which does help some horses that are run a little bit hot. Um, you know, there's, there's, I mean, some horses do just truly love to jump and they get overly excited. Some horses want so badly to do their job, but they, it hurts so much that they'll just run at a jump and use speed, um, to get over the fence because they can't use their body correctly. So, you know, first of all, I just make sure he's not back sore, neck sore. You know, it might make sense to have a chiropractor check him out or a little bit of body work just to make sure he's not running to the fences because he, he knows he can't get over him without running. Um, and then otherwise, in terms of training things, you just have to start setting up exercises like a trot pole to a small X and make him halt afterwards and then quietly walk all the way around the arena, come back, trot, you know, break it up so that he never gets his little adrenal glands pumping up in that front to the point where you can't get him to, to unwind. So um, you'll probably have to break up the work and just habitually teach him that at the end of a, you know, one jump or two jumps or three, you know, or a grid that he always stops 
and that's that's just a way of life from now on. Uh, Kathy in Oregon has a horse that is narrow at the base and towed out. She wants to know if you have any tips for keeping a horse with conformational challenges sound during training. What do you recommend? Well, you know, of course, it depends on what the challenge is, and and um, with her horse specifically narrow and towed out, depending on the discipline, um, probably at any point, no matter the discipline, one thing I would think about with a horse like this is one, shoe him in half-round shoes so he can break over any way he wants rather than forcing the break over over the toe like with a rocker toe or a you know, some of those natural balance shoes um, have the breakover point so um, emphasized that horses that are a little crooked-legged can get sore uh, with those kinds of shoes. So a half-round shoe allows the horse to break over any way they want. If the farrier isn't able to, you know, hot shoe or forge um, a half-round shoe or can't get the, I think they have, pre-made half-rounds now, but the eventers also allow horses to break over um, medially and laterally, and and that just, you know, if the horse is an adult and he's crooked-legged, that's the way he is, you're not going to make him straight, so um, that's what you would do for him shoeing-wise to keep him a little more comfortable, and splint boots, just make sure, because a lot of times these crooked-legged horses are more likely to whop their splint bone, and you just want to protect that, um, and then, you know, Again, <laughs> for any horse, conformationally challenged or not, I think it's really important that they um, have a soft place to lay down and rest their joints and a place to move around so they're not getting lymphatic congestion and, and uh, soreness just from standing. We have a question from our live audience. Lisa in Florida wants to know how often you would recommend a horse get supportive or complementary therapies such as massage, chiropractic, or, or other complementary therapies. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, and again, it depends on the horse and, and what the horse is doing and what the symptoms of the horse are. I mean, uh, you know, I've had clients find big knots in their horse's neck or the glutes or hamstrings or something like that. And, and uh, you know, but the horse will not be sore in palpation. Other times, you know, you'll find they're extremely sore in palpation. And, you know, certainly in those situations, it, it would make some sense to do some body work. Um, chiropractic usually addresses range of motion issues, like a horse that is good on the left lead but not on the right or you know, hangs the right front when it jumps or can do shoulder and left but not right. So, um, you know, that ad addresses range of motion issues, and a lot of times the equine massage can, can support the chiropractic work or other, you know, there's so many, there's just a huge range of supportive therapies out there. It's kind of hard to know where to begin, but, you know, massage is one of the oldest in the world, and, um, you know, I've had, in terms of the chiropractic work that I do, I've felt like some horses really benefited from having some massage done before I worked on them so they weren't so sore and so defensive, you know, when I did the adjustment. But, um, you know, it's, a, it's an individual basis. A, a lot of my clients have their horses massaged every month. A lot of them, you know, as needed, and some some people just don't believe in it. So... It's sort of the individual's uh, decision, and I, you know, I I might recommend it and and find that you know nobody does it, but you know most most of the people that have uh, you know a serious sport horse program have body work done on their horses, and sport horse can, is reining, cutting, you know, whatever. So we received a lot of questions about older dressage horses, which didn't surprise me. I've benefited from older schoolmasters because right. they know so much, but they right. are also older <laughs> and creaky. Yeah. Um, so we have questions from Anna in Virginia, from Ellen Catherine in New Jersey, and from Gail in Tennessee, and all of them have to do with with these older horses. Uh, Anna specifically has a 24-year young Holsteiner gelding. He's been trained through Grand Prix, but she's trying to ride him 
now just to get him fit for second or third level work. He seems happy and comfortable, and she has him getting Cairo and massage and joint supplements. She said, what else can she do to keep him feeling good? Um, and also, I'd like um, you to comment also on what second and third level work means in dressage for those of us who may not be familiar w- with with the levels of the sport. Sure. So, I mean, the horse trained to Grand Prix has been trained at the highest level of dressage. Second and third level work is about a third of the way up the training scale. It requires lateral work, shoulder in, haunches in, run there, half pass, um, just all the sideways movements. And at second and third level, you're beginning a little bit more real collection. And, and you know, third level work, um, you're, the gymnastic exercises are a little more intense and precise, and you're starting your flying change work. Um, your canter walk, walk canter transitions come in here. So it, it's just the beginning of, of real collection. So this horse already knows about it, um, and I would say if she's working him at that level, she's probably, you know, using the lateral work to keep him as supple as possible. It's like, you know, being 60 and, and doing yoga to try to maintain your range of motion um, and strength. And it sounds like, you know, she describes him as being young and, and she provides him a lot of support. So um, the other th- only other thing I would add is, you know, the importance of the long warm-up um, you know, working the horse with his Grand Prix horse, you know, knows to how to go around in collection and the neck is up, but that doesn't mean he should work like that all the time. And I think it's important in the older horses to work them stretching their neck down and using the lateral work to stretch the back up. Um, just the, the biomechanics of how the horse's body works, the nuchal ligament connects to the wither, and when the neck goes down, it pulls that wither a little forward and up. And that's what biomechanically lifts the back and tones the spinous ligaments. So then that longissimus muscle that goes from the hind end all the way through to the base of the neck can start really working to to swing and carry the back. And that's what really maintains the range of motion and, you know, all the thoracic vertebrae and through the neck. So she'd want to work him a little bit low and through his back like that to keep everything moving and pumping. And... Um, then school, you know, a few movements, and then, um, you know, with lots of walk breaks, and then cool them out and finish them off. And we had a question from our news editor, Erica, who also has an older horse. She writes our senior horse blog, and her horse is an eventer. Is there anything different when you're um, working with a horse like an eventer that's doing some lower-level competition when they're a senior. Any recommendations in addition to what you've offered about dressage horses? No, not really. I mean, the, the event horses need to work through their backs, too. You know, so in terms of working them, you know, again, you want to, uh, you're trying to maintain range of motion and and keep the horse comfortable. And, um, you know, the older the horse, the longer the warm-up. I mean, the older I get, I uh, you don't run to the coffee pot in the morning anymore, that's for sure. So, you know, it, it takes you a little longer to warm up, and, and you work them according to what you feel is is available in the horse, and then, you know, you judiciously ask for a little more, and, and if they're sound enough and moving well enough, you know, you can go ahead and do your lateral work. And event horse, you know, depending on what level he invented and, and how sound he is, um, you know, he knows how to jump. I mean, the problem often is that the riders need to practice jumping, not the horse. And, you know, in a perfect world, every rider would have three horses they could jump, so each horse only had to jump twice a week. But they could jump, you know, every day or maybe even two horses a day, but that doesn't happen. Um, but, you know, an older horse, you, you don't want to jump a lot. You know, you want to keep it to a minimum. And, again... You know, a nice deep bed where these older guys can lay down and let their lymphatic system drain and, and you know, get off their legs. I think it's really important they keep their backs warm with a blanket when it's cold and a nice soft place to lay down. And, um, and otherwise, it's pretty much 
the same no matter the discipline. We have a question from Rose in Tennessee about her horse who is having a stifle issue. The horse is uh, seven years old. He's a quarter horse. And he seems to just drop out in his stifle as a human would who has a knee that that is slack or, or falling out of joint. Um, yeah. She says he has an old injury on that leg, but lower on the cannon bone. Um, she's had him adjusted by a chiropractor, which seemed to free him up a little bit, but he's still doing this. He's not lame, but it's concerning to her. She doesn't want to push him too hard. Do you have any recommendations for Rose and her horse Tex? Yeah, I mean, without looking at the horse, it's hard to say, but it it sounds like, you know, like just she, like exactly how she described it, someone kicking your knee out. And, um, it often has to do with a kind of a fitness issue with the quadriceps muscles and the other muscles that support the stifle. So you'd want to do some exercises that help strengthen the stifle. And a dressage horse, it would be lateral work. Um, and she might be able to do some shoulder in and leg yield work with this guy. And Cavaletti hill work, um, if you don't have hills, then Cavalettis are about the next best way to start strengthening the quads. Um, some people like to back horses up. They think that strengthens the hind end, but I, I've seen that make a lot of horses sore, and I'm a little hesitant to overdo um, that whole backing up thing. I, I'd rather do something that's forward-moving and um, helps, helps them strengthen the, the quads. So trot poles are hugely have, helpful um, and heel work. And just, you know, fitness work, interval training that helps strengthen the, the whole skeletal muscular system. Um, now, N- Natasha in New York also had a question about strengthening the stifles, and I think we've addressed part of her question. She wants to know if there's anything she can do before she rides, uh, any exercises that she could put her horse through to help strengthen him from the ground. Do you have any suggestions on that? Well, there's some hand work that you can do, like the turn on the forehand work and um, lunging work, uh, long lining, long reining. But um, most of it's probably going to be done from the, the saddle. And, again, just interval training and fitness. And if she's, you know, in a flat area, then, then cavalities could be hugely helpful for her. Uh, we have a question from CJ in Illinois, and CJ wants to know how you would condition and develop a saddle seat horse for upper-level competition. She said that she's, she sees many horses that compete at ages three through five, but then seem to disappear, um, and she wonders if, if they're going away because they're doing too much too soon in, in their lives. Well, it's a pretty intense industry. And those horses have to be pretty fired up and hot to do their job. Um, I think some of them probably disappear just because, you know, it's, it's more pressure than a young horse can, some young horses can take. Some disappear just because, you know, they've proven themselves and they, they become um, used for breeding. And then some just become somebody's, you know, nicely trained um, trail horse or park horse. Um, you know, if, if you're training for upper-level competition, uh, you know, there are age restrictions for certain classes, but if you want a, a horse to last, then you have to... Uh, Charles DeCunty has a wonderful saying. He says, the horse is the clock. And you really can't go any faster than the horse can go. And so if you're, you know, reading your horse well and you feel like they're getting too uptight or they can't manage it or or physically they're struggling, then you need to to temper it down and, and back it off. And again, with the, the saddle horses, I mean, when they're on, they have to be on right now. Um, you know, so transitions are important. You know, when forward and back, it has to be prompt. They have to, those horses have to get up and get going immediately. So, you know, it depends on the horse's temperament and, and the rider's talent or the trainer's, you know, talent. But, um, you have to read your individual horse's temperament and, and their body and see if they're holding up to the work or if you need to tone it down and, and incorporate. I mean, I always believe in incorporating the interval training um, in any discipline. Lots of walk breaks help 
physically as well as emotionally when the work is intense. We have a question from Lisa in our live audience. She wants to know if you think hawk problems cause back problems or vice versa. And are they always related to each other? Um, I think 80% of the time they are related. And I, it's interesting, this one hunter jumper barn that I used to take care of down in the Bay Area, um, the trainer initially didn't really believe in the chiropractic work at all. Um, and his horses were getting hawk injections, you know, every six months. And when I finally conned him into, you know, giving it a whirl, it was so interesting that if we did the hawks and made sure they were chiropractically comfortable, um, these horses would go years without needing hawk injections. Um, so I, I think they can be related. I think sometimes when the horses back is out of whack they you know they have to compensate in how they move and i think the hawks probably take on some of the stress of that compensation and um vice versa if, if the hawks are fusing the horse will try to protect the hawk by moving a certain way which might contribute to a chiropractic issue i think probably more often than not the chiropractic or at least it seems to me that the chiropractic's lead to hawk issues more often than hawk issues leading to chiropractic issues. We have a question from Marcy in New Jersey who has a four-year-old off-the-track thoroughbred gelding. She said that they're going to retrain the horse as a riding horse and she wants to know what you consider the optimal amount of downtime between his racing career and his riding career. Well, if he's only four, he didn't race that much, which is good. Um, and again, it depends on his temperament. I, I think six months is really a minimum because you want to let that whole racing fitness thing go. I, I always tell my clients, you want to train your horse before you want to get your horse fit. So it just makes him safer, you know, a little bit fat and lazy and, uh, you know, especially horse off the track. Um, you know, so they aren't quite as fit and, and just a little, you know, get them a little more trained before you get them very fit. So six months, I think, is sort of a minimum. Um, but again, it depends on the individual. I have a client down in in the California Valley wood, woodland area that um, she specializes in getting horses off the track and retraining them, primarily for eventing. And, you know, she... She has some horses that come off the track that are just perfectly happy to go right to work and and just never bat an eye. Um, and they need, although her horses all get turnout every day, they're out in big pastures. So, you know, in a sense, they have some that kind of downtime, but they're still, you know, training and starting to jump and do stuff. But she's had some horses that really took like two years before they finally, and it was more an emotional thing where they finally gave up some of their defensiveness and worry. So um, I would say six months is a minimum, and, and well, you know, the horse is the clock, so you give them the time they need. We have a question from Chris in Kentucky, and she wants, would like you to address the importance of aligning the horse in the walk, trot, and canter to get a true stretch before riding the horse on contact. Do you have any comments on that? Well, sometimes you just can't get a horse straight until you get them crooked anyway. Um, and you can't get a true stretch until you, and when I say crooked, you know, you start bending them. Um, some horses you have to use bending to actually get them to stretch, you know, and to start taking a little contact. And so not that you would just grab the bit with both fists and, and do a lockdown, but I'm talking about opening a rein and encouraging bending so the horse starts to understand connecting with the bit and, and moving forward to the bit, um, I find most horses are not inherently perfectly straight and they're not going to get any straighter by just sending them, you know, forward without some kind of contact. You know, I mean, usually you have to use the lateral work to get the horse truly straight and through the back and to, the, to a true stretch. Um, different people have different definitions of a stretch, but when I talk about a stretch, I'm talking about a, a horse that's, you know, lowering the neck and maybe is even slightly behind the vertical when the neck is down, 
and um, stretching all the way through their back so that their whole back can swing and the purity of the gait is maintained. So how does that kind of stretching and suppleness help prevent injury long-term for the horse? Well, you know, um, training in general should, first of all, restore a horse's natural gait. I mean, so often you see horses that, you know, you'll see a pleasure horse with a 4B canter or a dressage horse with a 4B canter that's, you know, been falsely collected and um, horses with tight nervous trot with a up neck, inverted neck and dropped back and and so proper training should at least restore the purity of the gait for the horse and usually that starts with trying to, in, you know, return proper range of motion to the limbs, and that comes from gymnastically developing them with the suppling and, and, and lateral work that helps to stretch and bend them. I call it horsey yoga. Um, you know, you're just trying to return their, their natural um, gait. And then beyond that, you know, good training should actually enhance the horse's gates that should make the horse more beautiful. So, um, and often, you know, I have one horse who would trot and canter by you and you'd, you'd hear the footfall it would be thunderous and loud. And, you know, two years later, you can hardly hear this horse's footfall because the horse is landing on bent joints and using their musculature correctly. And, and you have to think that if, if they're landing on the ground that softly, that they're, you're minimizing the concussion to the, to the joints and the whole body, and it should increase the longevity um, and soundness of the horse if they're worked correctly. Well, it's, with my two geldings, when they're running around in their paddock showing off for my filly, and they have these beautiful gates, tr- yeah. big trots and canters, I'm like, man, if I could just get out of their way... <laughs> Our next question is from Audra in Washington, and she says she hears a lot of people talking about a horse's headset or riding a horse in a frame. She wants to know what does this mean, and is it okay to ride a horse with its head set down, um, and or could this be hard on the horse's neck? Well, so I often will see a horse that carries their head in a nice position. So if you took a snapshot, it would look pretty. But in reality, when you're watching the horse move, you can tell they're not really using their body correctly. They're not, the scope of the step isn't as big as it should be, and the suspension isn't there, and the, the in dressage we talk about throughness, and uh, just qualitatively the, the way the horse moves. Um, and so I, I, I hate the term headset for sure. And even, I, you know, I, I hate the term on the bit because it kind of gives you the feeling that the horse is hanging in your hands. Um, I had a riding instructor that used to say, it's better to say the horse is in the reins, that you have the feeling that you have this elastic, permeable communication with the horse. Um, and when you say riding in a frame, you know, it gives you this picture of this horse locked into a square that's rigid. And um, I think of riding as living sculpting, and the, and the horse is the clay, and you're, you're continually molding and, and shaping the horse. And so um, while a horse can be, you know, carrying themselves in a beautiful way, it should never seem static. And so, you know, riding in a frame and being a horse with a head set is something that's static. It doesn't have a life and a fluid feel to it. Um, permeability is just a great word for that. So um, it's it's actually not okay. And it's not only hard on, the, on their neck, but it's hard on their back and it's hard on their hind legs. Um, you want to ride the horse with a more elastic and, and through way of going that... that um, is is pleasing to the eye, so to speak, but doesn't have a static feel to it. Can riding a horse with its head set 
um, cause any long-term damage, like any arthritis in the neck or, or any damage to the ligaments? Well, it, it depends on the headset, too, but if the horse is falsely um, collected to the point where the flexion is no longer in the correct place, which would be in the throat latch between the um, occipital-lanal joint, um, what you'll see is a thickening like between the second and third cervical vertebrae, and the nuchal ligament attachment there can get torn. Um, you can end up with secondary arthritis and sort of an acquired wobbler syndrome. I've seen many, sadly, uh, dressage horses that had been flexed improperly and ended up with secondary arthritic changes that actually caused them to be neurologic. And you see this in saddlebreds, too. Um, and so, yeah, there, there can be dire consequences. There can also be consequences to the lumbosacral and sacral ileal joints um, and the spinous ligaments as it passes over the wing of the ilium. The is often caused, you know, a jumper bump. Um, it can be partly chiropractic issues, but that can come from being ridden in a, a false, falsely framed horse or, you know, a headset. We have a couple of questions on developing a top line. Um, Annie in Virginia wants to know what are some of the best exercises for developing and maintaining a good type, top line on a Western Pleasure or Trail horse. And Leslie in Pennsylvania wants to know, in addition to daily training and conditioning, are there any oral or injectable supplements that could aid in building the horse's top line and overall musculature? Well, so specifically for the Western Pleasure horses, I find a lot of them end up with overdeveloped gluteals and, and the loin connection isn't what it should be. And I think that comes partly because they aren't ridden in a more forward trot. And I find the, the, the better Western Pleasure trainers ride their horses forward and bring them back and send them forward and bring them back. Those transitions alone are, are so good for building the top line. Um, you know, and again, the the top line, when people talk about it, it's the longissimus dorsi muscle that goes all the way from the pelvis under the shoulder through the base of the neck. Um, and so when the horse is really lifting the base of the neck and therefore a little bit positionally lowering the neck, um, then that biomechanically is allowing the back to swing and work there are other muscles in the neck that help that tie in from the base of the neck to the wither, and when those muscles are working correctly, they pull that wither up and forward, and then the wither, when it's pulled forward, the spinous ligaments are toned and lift the whole skeleton, and so you're working, you're trying to work the longissimus muscle over the back, and people think of that muscle as a, a holding muscle, like it, it holds the skeleton up. But in truth, those muscles are for locomotion, and that's where you get your swing and your throughness. And if, if the horse isn't going forward, for one thing, you're not working those muscles. But the other part of it is that the horse has to lower his neck or at least use the muscles in the base of the neck to pull that wither up and forward so that the ligaments are supporting the skeleton and, and the, the longissimus muscle isn't just stinted and braced trying to support the skeleton. And then as far as Leslie's question about any supplementation, is there anything nutritionally? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um, there's been some re research that shows some feeds are low in the sulfur amino acids, methionine and cysteine, and I can't remember the other one. Um, and there, there are supplements, um, amino acid supplements that are specifically, that have just the three amino acids, sulfur amino acids, to help supplement a diet where, you know, if for some reason the hay is low in the sulfur amino acids, um, a protein, you can only make as much protein as you have the least number of amino acids. So if you've got a hundred of all the amino acids except the sulfur and you only have four of each, then you can only make four proteins, you know, so to speak. Um, so by bumping up those sulfur amino acids, you might be able to 
um, utilize more of the feed that you're providing your horse. And then otherwise, I mean, there's, um, you know, Bodybuilder has been a huge supplement used in a lot of dressage horses. It's supposed to be related to androgen, which is male hormone type stuff to help build muscle and, and build top line. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of a conservative, old-fashioned person, and I, I'd rather see the horse get work correctly. We, um, we're, da- actually, we're out of time. <laughs> we ran out of time. <laughs> there we go. Oh, oh, there it goes. I was going to ask you one more question, but it's time for us to wrap up. I wish we had more time um, to address more of these questions. Uh, but before we go, I would just want to ask you what you think is the most important thing that people should take away from our discussion tonight. The horse is the clock. Bed your stalls deeply. Turn your horses out. Uh, Those are probably the biggest things. Interval training, cross training, and uh, be, be patient. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Stewart, for joining us tonight. Uh, And I want to thank everyone who sent in questions before the event started and everyone who was in our live audience sending in questions. Um, I think we had a really great conversation. I hope that uh, our audience can join us next month in May when we're going to be talking about heaves and respiratory issues in horses. Everyone, thanks again and have a good night.